Let's go! I don't know about you, but worship pumps me up every time because it's saying things we know are true about the God that we love at high volume. Can I get an amen in the chat in all caps at high volume? My name is Zach Flagg. I am the student ministries pastor. I'm the high school pastor at Sun Grove Church. It is great to be together today, and we love God. We're going to go right into his word and look about what it means that your trial would be your testimony. You see, we're in a series on the book of Acts in the New Testament. This is talking about the rise of the early church. So because of the life of Jesus, now they are spreading the message of God's goodness, that he loves us, that he's reaching to us, and that he has a way for us to have eternal life Not just when we die, but starting right now. Your life right now has eternal significance. And because of that, I want you to make an agreement today with me. I'm going to say a sentence. I want you to say it back out loud. If you're listening on your AirPods or earbuds, if you're listening at home, if you're listening along, maybe you're on a run, maybe you're in the kitchen getting something to eat, wherever you are, I want you to pause for one moment and say these words with me. I expect God's word to work in my life. Would you say that with me? I expect God's word to work in my life. That is good news. That is good news. And now that we're all on the same page, we're going to look at God's word. You see, I've heard it said that there's a statement. There's a statement. It says, the best defense is a good offense. Think about that for a minute. The best defense is a good offense. Now, traditionally, a defense keeps your opponent from scoring or from attacking or from experiencing success. An offense is where you take ground. You score points. You go on an aggressive. You're you're out getting after it. And I've heard it said, perhaps attributed to George Washington, he wrote in a letter to a friend saying, that the best defense is a good offense because if you're on offense, you leave the other team without much room. They have to go on defense because you're attacking, you're taking ground, and you're doing great things for your team. Now, George Washington won the Revolutionary War. He's 1-0, and so I think we can listen to what he's saying. The best defense is a good offense. I am a fan of sports. I love sports. Aren't they great, right? I like sports. You might like something else. I like sports. And in sports, there's also this concept of offense and defense. Maybe think about if you're a video gamer, there's offense and defense. Think about if you like sports, there's that. Make the parallel as you will. But one of my favorite sports teams at one time was setting records on offense. They were scoring more points than anybody else in the history of their sports league. They were doing great. And every week as a fan, it was so satisfying for me to go, how many points did we score on the opponent today? It was great. I was living high. And they made it to the championship game. But in that championship game, they ran into a truly ferocious defense. This defense was anchored by a whole crew of scrappy, hungry, tough young guys that were shutting down offenses all across the league. And so I go to this game thinking, my offense is going to beat your defense. (laughs) But what happened is on the first play of the game, the offense 
turned the ball over and lost points. The defense scored. And when the defense scores points, when the defense goes on the offense, it is nearly impossible to win. And that's exactly what happened. My team suffered a humiliating embarrassing, soul-crushing loss for which I probably need counseling in the championship game. And I still haven't forgot it. But one thing that taught me is that when the defense can score points, when your defense goes on the offense, when your defense is aggressive, it is so much more likely that you're going to succeed. And this rings true in the life of the Apostle Paul. You may say, Zach, Paul didn't play sports. Not that we know of. What are you talking about? It was the first century. And I'm going to tell you, Paul in Acts chapter 26 is being asked to make his defense. He's in a courtroom setting. You might think of a great courtroom book or drama where someone is put on trial for a crime. And Paul stands accused of some offenses. Okay, Paul stands accused of some offenses. But in the place where he's asked to make his defense, Paul goes on offense. Let's see what happens. We're going to open up Bibles. I have a paper one. Yours might be on your screen. You might have a web browser. You might have another thing. And I'm going to find my spot with one hand. There we go. We're in the book of Acts chapter 26. Let's set the scene. It's the first century. Paul is in prison on the coast of Israel at a place called Caesarea Maritima. It sounds like a great salad dressing. Maybe say that to your neighbor, Caesarea Maritima. And he's on the sea, on the seashore, and he's been wrongfully imprisoned for two years, and no one has been able to prove the false offenses, the charges laid against him. He is standing today in a courtroom speaking to the Jewish regent called King Agrippa, the Roman Empire. Remember that? That's happening at this time. And King Agrippa is the Jewish overlord who serves Rome and is set up over the Jewish people. And this is the man before whom Paul is making his defense. We pick up in verse 1 of chapter 26. King Agrippa, the Jewish regent, says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Make your defense. Bring it. So Paul motioned with his hand like a great orator and began his defense. King Agrippa I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially because you are so well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way that I've lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and they can testify, legal, legal words, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes, our brothers and sisters are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you find it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, 
I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. Okay, church words, we're pausing. He says, I went from one synagogue to another. I went from one church to another. The synagogue is where the Jewish people gathered to worship. And that's still so today. We love that, right? And he said, I tried to make them blaspheme. I tried to make them recant their faith, to turn away, to say, I'm not with it. I don't believe in Jesus. And he said, I tried to force them to blaspheme. It doesn't say he succeeded because people who have been loved by Jesus find it very hard to turn away from Jesus. When you've experienced the love and the care of a good and loving God, of a good and loving God who takes care of you, it's hard to turn away. Don't turn away. This is a good thing. I was so obsessed, he continues on, I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We're coming up to Christmas time, and when it says, a great light was seen in the heavens, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Two times that word is used in the Bible. One at Jesus' birth, the other right here when Jesus shows up to Paul, okay? He saw an ultralight beam, right? He was, he was on a God dream, as they say. So I saw a light blazing from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, the language of the Jewish people at the time, Jesus was Jewish. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and find a place among those who are sanctified, made holy, made righteous, just as if I had never done it, made righteous by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that would be you and me who are not Jewish, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. You go all in for a life with Jesus and your deeds show that. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah, the promised one from God, would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Notice that theme of light woven throughout Paul's message. At this point, Festus, 
legal ruler, interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Okay, he gets loud in the courtroom. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. Friends, you and I who serve Jesus have a faith that is both true and reasonable. It's good to know these things. Paul says, the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, a Christian, a believer in Jesus, except for these chains And Paul would have been bound in the courtroom as a prisoner, but he was the most free man in the room. I tell you that. I tell you that. You would have seen it in his eyes. You would have heard it. You would have heard the fire and the thunder in his voice. And then it it scared Festus. He was like, you're out of your mind. You've lost touch with reality. But Paul was reasonable. He was passionate and reasonable. That's a beautiful combination. Let's be passionate and reasonable people. Amen. The king rose And with him, the governor and Bernice, his sister, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. This is the third time in the book of Acts that no one has been able to prove Paul guilty because he is innocent. Three trials, three times proven innocent. And yet he's not released. That's because the hand of God is on Paul's life and he's using his trial to preach a testimony. That's the message you and I need to hear today. Wherever you are, whatever you're hearing, listen to these words because they could change your life. Your trial is your testimony. Your trial is your testimony. Would you say that with me? Your trial is your testimony. What does that mean? Well, Paul is in a courtroom. He's in a courtroom. He is on trial because of his beliefs. And you know what? That's exactly what Jesus had said would happen. When Jesus was alive on earth, he said these words, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Jesus was reading 2020's mail. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues. And put you in prison. Where was Paul? Yep, prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors. Who? Paul was talking to to King Agrippa and to to the governor named, named Festus. Okay. And all on account of my name. Okay, it's because of serving Jesus that Paul is in trouble. Okay. His people are upset about it. And you will bear testimony to me. Jesus is way ahead, right? Jesus is God. He has God level knowledge. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For what I I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. 
but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. And that phrase, win life, means you will participate in eternal life. You will experience the benefits of eternal life. You will win life. Jesus is telling them, come on, you want to win life? I want to win life. Yeah, you, you want to win life. The way that you win life is you make your best defense a good offense. Your trial when you're supposed to be on defense, just hunkering down and surviving, proclaiming your innocence, is your testimony. That's where you witness. That's where you say what you saw. That's where you go on offense about what God has done for you in your life. That's exactly what Paul did. And that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, don't worry about what you're supposed to say. I'll give you the words through my Holy Spirit. The best defense is to go on offense. The best witness to other people is for you to share your story. What has God done? What is your experience? What has God done in your life? Tell your story. Don't be on defense. Go on offense. That's what it means that your trial is your testimony. Because let me tell you, 2020 has tested us. Raise your hand in the chat. Throw something in there. If you have been personally attacked by 2020 and tested and put through trials, where's your hand? Here's my hand. Here's two hands, right? 2020 has been a trial, all right? But your trial is your testimony. Your suffering is God's story. Your trial is your testimony. Your hard times are a witness of worship. What does that mean? When you and I go through hard times, when you and I go through trials, when you and I are put on defense for what we believe, we're to respond with offense. And the way we do that is just say what we've seen. That's what it means to witness. Just say what you've seen. That's called your story. And today, I want to make it really simple for you to make your trial your testimony. When someone asks you about what you believe or you have an opportunity to share what you believe, here's how you do it according to what Paul just did here. First, talk about life before Jesus. Paul does that by using some really powerful descriptor words. He talks about darkness before Jesus and light when he met Jesus and after Jesus. I proclaim the light of the gospel, right? He also talks about madness, being out of your mind, being unreasonable, being uh, zealous to the point of just uncontrollable rage, okay? And then on the other side, he talks about sanity, clear-headedness, reason, being able to have a sober outlook on life. In the same way, you can talk about what life was like before Jesus. Let me give you an example. You're talking to someone and they say, I'm struggling with this season. I'm having problems in my relationships. They might say, a family member has COVID. They might say, my grandma has cancer. They might say, we're having problems in our marriage. They might say, my dog died. Whatever it is, you take that thing and you speak to what other people will understand. Okay. The first step is to move with empathy, empathize with their experience. That's what Paul does. He's like, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you and talk to you because I know you know all about our Jewish customs and way of life. He says, we, we can relate. We have something in common, okay? Empathize with their experience. That's what you're gonna do. And by empathizing with someone else, you build a bridge. You build common ground. So I could say, I'm so sorry that your grandma is sick. You know what? 
my grandpa, I know how that feels because my grandpa passed away from pancreatic cancer. And I experienced a lot of loneliness. I'm going to use words to describe before Jesus. I experienced a lot of loneliness. It felt like a really dark time. I was super sad. And I started making decisions out of fear, making decisions out of being scared. And that led me to a really dark place. I didn't like who I was becoming. And I didn't like what was going on in my life. But when I turned my life over to the control of God by saying, God, you can have my life. You can do what you want with me. And I invited Jesus into my heart and into my life. I experienced healing. I experienced forgiveness. I experienced peace when I could have had fear. And now on the other side of that, yeah, I still get lonely sometimes, but I know that I'm never alone because God is with me. And I still feel fear sometimes, but I know that God is fighting for me. What do you think about that? Paul does a beautiful thing. He empathizes with someone else's experience. And the best picture I can give of this is a tailor. You say, Taylor Swift? No, a tailor, like someone who makes suits, someone who makes clothes. Now, I'm wearing a shirt, and we could make a lot of things out of this material, right? If we had a whole bunch of this material, we could make hats. We could make dresses. We could make tailored suits for people who are big and tall. We can make tailored suits for people who are petite and sweet, right? We can make all sorts of clothing out of the same material. Paul shares his testimony three times in the book of Acts. He brings the same material, but he cuts it a little bit differently based on who he's talking to. So what we do with our testimony is we tailor our testimony, we cut it, we shape it using the same material. We're being true to the facts and true to the story. Paul's under oath, okay? We're being true to the story, but we cut the material in a way that it will fit the person for what they need, okay? Someone needs comfort. You're going to tailor your testimony to fit the person who needs comfort. How do you do that? You empathize with their experience. You say, we're coming from a similar place. And you talk about what life was like in your own story before Jesus. You talk about how Jesus came into your life, how you met Jesus. And then you talk about what life is like after Christ. So this is something you will want to experience. You'll want to practice. You'll want to talk about it. But here's how you do this. Take something common. It could be anxiety. Where have you felt anxious? Where have you felt low? And you say, you know what? I've, I know what it feels like to be anxious. There was a time in my life where, and now you're going to use those darkness and light. You're going to say, it was a dark season. It was a dark place. And you can give the detail specific to you. But when I met Jesus... Light. Explain what happened. Tell it in the way that you experience it. And don't use big Christian words. You could say, I turned my life over to God. I said, God, you can make my decisions. And I agreed to live my life and invited God into my life. I asked Jesus to come into my life, to come into my heart. And he did. And then describe what life is like after Jesus on the other side of that. Not everything's fixed. We're still a work in progress, but describe what it's like after. And then end with a question. End with a question. Why is this important? Because it puts the other person in the opportunity to make a decision. And that's what Paul does with King Agrippa. He says, you believe the prophets, right? King Agrippa, I know you do. And here's the thing. For King Agrippa, he has to make a decision. Because if he says, yes, I believe the prophets. Of course, I'm Jewish. Then Paul will say, then why don't you believe Jesus? 
then do you believe Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the prophets? Ooh, he's got him there. But if he says, nah, I don't believe the prophets, then as a Jewish king ruling a Jewish people, he loses all credibility. He loses all credibility. He's out. So either he has to say, I'm in for Jesus, or I'm out altogether. And it would cost him. Help people understand. Bring them to a place. You could say, how does that strike you? What do you think about that story? Have you met Jesus? Lead them to an opportunity to make a decision. And the best way to do that is through a question. So tell your story. You're going to empathize with their experience. You know what? I relate to you. You're going to talk about life before Jesus. You're going to talk about how you met Jesus and what it's like with Jesus on the other side of that. And end with a question. What is that like for you? So after doing this, I want to tell you, I understand whatever it is you're going through, right? I understand what it's like to be human and broken. I understand what it's like to feel fear. I understand what it's like to have pain. I know what it's like to have addictions or things you can't free yourself from on your own strength. I understand what it's like to see family members die. I understand what it's like to be sick. I understand what it's like to feel really low and to be in darkness. But when I met Jesus, I was crying on my bed (laughs) and I invited him. I said, God, I need you. Show me what to do. I've hit the lowest low. And in that moment, I felt peace come over me. That is like nothing else I've ever experienced. And I felt thoughts of love and warmth and hope and peace that I knew were not coming from me. And in that moment, I promised my life to God. I said, God, I will do whatever it takes to keep hearing from you and feeling you and experiencing life with you like I am right now. And that decision has changed everything for me. I've been able to weather some storms. I've been through some hard things, but instead of feeling low and lonely, I know that God is with me every moment of every day. I walk with a boldness and confidence that is guided by reason. I am confident about the truth of Jesus Christ. I have answers in this life and hope for the next life. I have a purpose that goes beyond today and looks into tomorrow and into eternity. And I know it's not about me, but it's all about God. And that's what I want my life to tell everybody. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Have you ever invited Jesus into your heart or your life? If you have never asked God to be a part of your life, to be your purpose, to be the one true love that you're looking for all your whole life long through all your relationships and you're still not satisfied, now is the time. And you do that by talking to God and telling him, I admit, I admit that I fall short, that I've done wrong, that I've hurt other people, I've hurt myself, and I've hurt you. And you ask God for forgiveness and you ask him to come into your life. You surrender the control of your willpower to God because your willpower has gotten you exactly where you are right now and it's broken. (laughs) I don't need to know you to know that there are some problems that are bigger than you that you cannot fix. And so you turn those over to the care and control of God. He is loving, he is perfect, and he holds you tenderly in his care. He walks with you every moment of every day. So let's do that together now. We've come to a moment of opportunity. 
and this is the beginning of your testimony. This trial that you're facing is the beginning of your testimony. Let's pray and you pray with me. Whether you've accepted Jesus or not, we are praying in agreement. I need to see you in the chat celebrating people who come to new life in Jesus. Let's talk to God. You're gonna say after me something along these lines. Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I have fallen short. I have hurt myself and other people, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I receive your forgiveness. Jesus, please come into my life. I want to live with you and have you be in command of my life every moment of every day, now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, what a great time. This is a moment where eternity might begin for you, where your trial is now a testimony because you can talk about what you've seen God do in your life. And we're celebrating that. We love you. We love you. We love you. Keep being engaged. Keep coming back. We love you. And we'll see you very soon. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.